Bo Dewar, host of the American Soccer Dad podcast here, back for another week, and we are grabbing the third rail with both hands. We'll be talking about promotion relegation with Kyle Williams, who's a writer who has done an awful lot of work and filed up a lot of data uh, to talk about promotion relegation. And the challenge here was to have a frank but reasonable uh, discussion about the issues, and I think we did that. So I hope you'll enjoy that and want to give a quick reminder to support Ranting Soccer Dad on Patreon and to let you know the Travel Sucker merchandise will soon be available. Uh, very, very soon. I should have something on the site about it uh, by the end of the week and have actual merchandise ready to ship by until August 6th. We'll see how that goes. Here's the show. The cost of youth soccer, the industry, has just gotten completely out of control. Why are kids on certain teams and how they found themselves there? And is it indeed the best situation for them to develop? There really seems to be a lack of inclusion. I'd love to see a club just be honest and right. say that. <laughs> right, um, right. But you know all that BS? Forget that. We're not saying it because it doesn't matter. <laughs> We're just right. going to play to win. So I'm here with Kyle Williams, and as always, as all my guests on the show, can we start by having you introduce yourself and say who you are and how what your involvement with soccer is and how you came to love the game. Sure. Thanks, Bo. So I am a diehard fan of the game and uh, a player where I've played my whole life, basically, and uh, at virtually every level in the United States other than the professional ranks. And uh, now, as uh, an adult, I'm uh, kind of just a blog writer and a freelance writer, so I co-founded the 93rd Minute Blog, where we do a bunch of writing from usually trying to do a statistical perspective on certain topics in soccer. And I've done some uh, writing for the Howler magazine and the Athletics uh, New Soccer section. All right. All all good places to write, Howard and Athletic, and, and also Nice of Minute, uh, which I've checked out a fair amount, and we urge readers to check that out, too. So we're going to start by talking at a broad level. We'll get into promotion relegation, but we're going to talk first about the state of soccer in the U.S., so we have some, some context for doing that. So what what is U.S. soccer doing well and not so well, which is certainly an open-ended question, but... Uh, but let's see where we go with that. Yeah, do you want to kick it off, Bo? And then maybe I'll uh, chime in uh, after you give a, a backdrop. Okay. Um, I think the what we're doing well is that there's probably more depth than there used to be. I was thinking about this recently in, in terms of um, men's national teams and comparing, say, the 1994 uh, World Cup team uh, the bulk of which went on in 1995 to Copa America and did very well. Um, I think that team would beat the teams that played in Trinidad in November last year. Now, the, the big difference would be that now you have 50, 75, however many players who would have a legitimate case to be on the national team, whereas in 1994-95, there weren't many because when you finished college, you either were on a national team contract, which a lot of those people were, 
or you found a spot in Europe, which was very difficult to do uh, in those days. It's still not that easy now, depending on the country you go to and, and the work permit situation. Uh, but very difficult in those days um, because there was no, you know, serious professional league in the U.S. I mean, you could play in what became the A-League, and at the time, you know, there were very few people getting what you would call a living wage. So there wasn't really that professional pool. So we built that out. We built out youth programs, and, you know, we, we tend to lurch forward and backward in terms of youth programs. But we've done pretty well in some youth international tournaments. We have a lot of kids now in, you know, what you call a professional environment starting at age, you know, 16, maybe even earlier. And so that's all progress. Now, the the failures, I think, again, with the men's national team, and, yeah, I don't need to leave out the women's game, but the women's game has some similar issues. I think participation is becoming a problem. I think the, the development academy, uh, some of the issues that are in the boys' development academy are also true in girls. Um, but it, it is a different situation where, in there, the U.S. is the most successful women's soccer nation to this point, and it's trying to remain ahead of programs that are uh, rapidly investing more. Um, and just, I think it happens right now, and the women's national team right now is unearthly good. Uh, just the competition for places they have is really good. But the men's national team, uh, not so good. And then the professional league, you know, left is in a weird point. To some extent, they're in a no-win situation because uh, a few years ago, the criticism was, well, they don't pay enough to attract top talent. Then they added the designated player rule and TAM and GAM and YAM and BAM and whatever, whatever All other GAMs they have. Yeah. Yeah. All of that stuff. And so then they started attracting more talent, and now they're saying, oh, well, now – young Americans don't get much playing time. So it's one of the things where it, it's difficult to to meet everything you need to, to meet with that. So um, I think perhaps one of the biggest problems we have is the stagnation or decline, depending on whose numbers you're using in youth soccer. Um, given, given the increased interest we have, I mean, in my lifetime, or certainly over like the last 15, 20 years, we've gone from where We'd have one tape-delayed Premier League game on TV, and you consider yourself lucky to have that. Now you can wake up Saturday morning and watch everything, uh, which you can't even do in England. Um, and that's just part of what's available right now. So given the growth in soccer culture, we should be seeing a growth in youth soccer. And we're seeing more kids wearing messy jerseys, but we're not seeing more kids playing. So I think that's perhaps the biggest failure. That's my yeah, that's, uh, so, uh, over to you. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good perspective, and I think you hit on some, some interesting points there. So I think the two, the two things that I think uh, I'd like to just discuss further is, so you talked about the depth argument versus uh, 94, say, versus uh, 2018, the Trinidad, mm-hmm. the team that played in Trinidad. And I would, t- I would agree with you. I think um, – um, yeah, teams 20 years ago, I think the top-level talent is better than it is now. And so to me, then, when we talk about depth, 
I guess in general, I agree with your point that, yeah, you could probably, the 50th best player today is certainly better than the 50th best player in 94, I would think it's safe to say. But I guess if, if the top 10 aren't any better, then kind of what is, you know, additional depth at 50 or 60 or 40 or wherever, how does that really help? And then in terms of the youth participation that you touched upon, why do you think that, you know, youth particip participation is dwindling? And then why do you think we haven't been able, now that, you know, we have MLS, we've had a league for over 20 years, we're not being able to develop players better than in 94, say, or 90, whenever you want to talk, um, before there really was a league, how come, you know, we haven't produced better players? Like, what, isn't that counterintuitive? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's, sometimes you have to be careful to avoid extrapolating too much from specific examples. If you can say, oh, well, Tad Ramos and John Harks played uh, high school and, and college soccer, and we don't have players today who are on that level. You know, we don't have a playmaker as capable today as Tad Ramos was in the mid-90s. And right. I, I think that's true. But I think Pat Ramos is an exceptional talent. I don't think that means that uh, you can't conclude from that that, oh, well, then we should have all our kids playing high school and college ball and not not have development academies even at pro clubs. I don't think that that's a conclusion you'd want to draw from that. Um, so, so, yeah, I, it's it becomes difficult. I, I think that the decline in youth soccer, uh, which is what I tend to write about and focus on the most, I think part of that is just general arrogance, where there were some fairly heavy-handed uh, mandates that came down from U.S. soccer uh, that I think I think they hurt the number of registrations. Which, the number of registrations is stagnant, and that's that's a number that can easily be measured. The other numbers that we talked about in the New York Times piece recently and have been talked about for a while, uh, if you follow the Project Play, Yep. You know, that's a survey done by 40 good manufacturers. Uh, you know, it's basically a poll. You know, how often, you know, how many of you actually play soccer? And that number has declined. You know, there's a margin for error on that poll, so we don't know. But what we know is that it's either stagnant or declining, and that's not good. Um, I think that some of the heavy-handed mandates have been bad. Also, I think that there is now sort of a travel or bus or a week soccer or bus mentality that has swept the country. And so you have, you know, we've made it to where, you know, right soccer we consider kind of a ghetto. And, you know, if your kids are playing right soccer, well, they're not of value. Uh, and if they're not even playing right soccer, if they're just kicking around, well, then we don't care about them at all. So I think that's an issue. I think people now have this mentality that if we can't, Spend two thousand dollars a year at least, you know, two thousand, five thousand, ten thousand, whatever you're spending. Uh, if you can't spend that either because uh, you can't afford it, you can't commit the time, or because maybe you're not good enough at the U9 tryout or the coach doesn't notice you, uh, then there's sort of this feeling of, well, what's the point? So we sort of lost the notion that at age nine you should just be going out and kicking around. And maybe, you know, maybe you'll develop into a good player. Maybe you won't. Uh, maybe you'll be a parent coach one day or a referee or an adult recreational player, all things that we need. And, you know, the, the idea is that 
you know, youth soccer is essentially a breeding ground for college, you know, pro players and college players rather than a good activity. And so I think if that mentality uh, sinks in, then, yeah, you're going to have fewer people playing. And then what do you think? So I'll ask another question, and I'm happy to delve into kind of my view of the world um, as well. So why do you think that um, some of these issues that we just discussed, that there, there's not the same there's not the same top-level quality as there was, you know, in the past, there is declining youth participation, I don't really see much being done about this. And, you know, so how, how do we solve these problems? I think there's a lot of problems that people are aware of, and that we can delve into to others as well. But nothing seems to be being done, really, to address these these fundamental issues at, at the core. What is your take on that? Right. Well, and there are some institutions that are trying. I mean, I mean, Project Play, the same institution that is uh, is giving us these numbers, you know, is trying to find programs uh, that help. And you know, one group they work with fairly extensively is the U.S. Soccer Foundation, which is separate from the Federation, uh, although the Federation supports it financially and gives, uh, and there's some share, the Federation can also appoint a couple of board members, um, but it is an independent entity, and, you know, they're trying to create the small courts and, uh, and programming, and, uh, and there was a great piece recently about uh, a rec center in, I believe it was in Compton, I mean, somewhere in L.A., and the foundation stepped in with some local people, and and among other things, they got the local gangs to agree that this was neutral turf. This didn't belong to one gang or the other. This is a free space. People could come in and play soccer and didn't matter which gang you were in, um, but you came in and played. And so there is stuff like that happening uh, at that level uh, that's fantastic. And Street Soccer USA uh, – whose board, Cal Martino, joined after the uh, presidential election. It's mm-hmm. a similar program like that. Now, the question is, what is the Federation doing about that? And, you know, it's, it was something that Carlos Cordero said was, you know, made a big point of in his, uh, his campaign. Uh, I happen to be following up on that right now for, for a story I'm doing. Uh, Cordero, of course, spent most of the first you know, the first few months was presidency focusing on the World Cup bid. Yeah. And, and also they hired uh, Ernie Stewart, the general manager of the national team. So it's just, you know, it's still too early to say whether it's fallen off his agenda or um, just, you know, the next plank after, you know, the World Cup had a pretty hard deadline. So, and both, quick aside, yeah. do you have any sense? What are the two or three most important issues that Cordero wants to tackle now that the World Cup bid and Ernie Stewart have been hired? Like, is there any, do you have any sense of that? What you expect him to do next? I'd expect youth soccer to really be the next, the next plank, uh, the next thing that he does. Um, and I think that, you know, I, I don't know exactly how he plans to go about doing that. Well, I, actually, I should back up a second. I do think another thing is that he wants the he wants the U.S. soccer to be more transparent and to have he's he is working to overhaul the governance uh, to mm-hmm. an extent, which is you know it, it's it's the sort of thing you write a story about it. It doesn't seem all that interesting, but it could pay dividends at some point. 
And yeah, there was a, there's been a lot of criticism about how deals have been made, particularly with Soccer United Marketing. I think the way the board is structured now, I'm cautiously optimistic that the way he's working on reorganizing the board and its committees, that the next time that deal comes up, people there'll be less criticism in uh, you know of the process. So you know that's yeah. coming up too, but it, it's hard to gauge that. You know, I'm not I can't say I'm a governance expert, no matter how many hours I spend reading the bylaws. Uh, right. I have read <laughs> far too many hours. Uh, so then, so, yeah, I do think that you think, and I think specifically cutting costs. I think that uh, he wants, he talks about having ODP be free. Uh, you know, right now people see ODP as a cash grab by state associations. So that would actually be a sea change. Um, if, if that were to come to pass, I don't know how we can do it. I don't know if it's possible, but I do think it's what he wants to address next. So then, Bo, from here's my perspective, and this may be a tiny bit long-winded, but um, so I look at the landscape, and I see we have issues with pay-to-play. I think MLS is not popular, and it's not catering to to most soccer fans in the United States. We have dwindling youth participation. We have many, many examples of communities and various stakeholders being excluded. I think we're failing at player development and scouting and player identification. We don't have a pickup grassroots culture. And these are all big things, and these are criticisms you could levy at a lot of countries, but there's a lot of issues. And you have someone like Cordero, who's been on the board for a long time, and I granted, he wants to get the World Cup bid, that's done. But someone who's on the board, who's been in this, who, who should be able to hit the ground running, I don't think people, you and I can't concretely say what his plan is or what his vision is. So maybe it's youth soccer. Maybe it's not, but we don't even know if it is youth soccer, what he's going to do. And I see I, I that as an issue. And if um, I'll just kind of go over a lot of these numbers that I've written about extensively. Mm-hmm. So in an analysis of the men's national team and looking at Gold Cup performance by decade, we are declining in performance over the past decade relative to the past. In terms of qualification. Which was the shocker. We won the first one in 91. Yeah, and our last, I believe the last victory, or Klinsman won one, and then I think it was Bob Bradley in 07 are the only two in the last, you know, 12 years or so. In terms of qualification, we've missed two straight Olympics, three of the last four. We've missed Youth World Cups at the U20 and U17 level. We've missed a Senior World Cup now. We, in terms of, I've looked at international competition, we only have two wins over top 20 teams in the past 15 years basically since the 2002 World Cup. Both of those were more than nine years ago. And just for reference, that's the victory over Mexico in the 2007 Gold Cup and over Spain in the 2009 Confederation Cup. Right. So we have have two wins in the past three World Cups. We didn't qualify for 2018. Um, And if you look at our World Cup record, which I did a thorough analysis of basically every World Cup since 1990, I have the U.S. ranked 31st out of 40 teams who have made three of the last eight World Cups. And their record is 5, 15, and 6. So they're not even winning 20% of their games. And there's a bunch of other data we could go through. And I just see this, and I'm seeing, and I think a lot of people feel this way, that I think we are so far from our potential as a country, and I think the warning signs and the failures have been numerous and recurring. 
and I don't see anyone really trying to tackle this, and it's and it's frustrating for someone like myself. I think a lot of people feel this way, where there's there's so much more that can be done. So that's kind of where I get into my state of soccer. That's kind of the worldview I look at it from, is that I think there's this perception of where the soccer is in this country that doesn't really marry with the reality of it. I know that's a lot, but uh curious to hear your thoughts mm-hmm. on some of that. No, I think that's that's true. And then you, there are a couple of a couple of difficult aspects here is that you know there's youth soccer is the long term play. I mean, if we were to fix youth soccer today to where we wanted it to be, that probably wouldn't have much impact on the 2022 World Cup. Maybe by 2026. Right. Yeah, I thought it was Yeah, and uh, but you know it's certainly valuable stuff to be to to do. Um, so I think that so I think that they do need to tackle you know multiple aspects of it at once. They do need to tackle the men's national team, which was um, you could say, well, Bruce Arena made a few selection mistakes. Okay, how did that happen? And then you can say, well, if you have a general manager um, who can provide better insight into things, maybe that helps. I'm I'm not entirely sure because uh the general manager job seems like the it, it seems like the job responsibilities are fairly vague. Um yeah. but you know, it's possible that just having Ernie Stewart there and, and Ernie Stewart is someone who uh certainly knows the European game very well. He grew up there. That's where he played most of his professional career and also he managed clubs there uh, in the Netherlands. So uh, he's got one foot solidly in that world, and and maybe that helps. So, uh, yeah, there, there are comprehensive things to do. Now, what's one thing that's unique about the U.S. is that there are so many stakeholders. And uh, when I go back to you know, the NSCAA convention session, where they have some people from Germany speaking, and very popular session. They had an auditorium that was practically just out full. Uh, and they asked one of the people, well, you know, what's, what strikes you as different about the U.S.? And he said, well, in the U.S., you have all these groups. You have U.S. youth soccer. You have U.S. club soccer. You have uh, different leagues that aren't necessarily on the, you know, different adult pro leagues that aren't necessarily on the same page. In Germany, and he holds up one finger, it's the DFB. You know, it's the Federation. And, you know, you look at Das Reboot, and of course now we're finding, if you follow the Ozil uh, case, that you know there were a few limitations to that. But uh, the general idea was that everything came from the federation. That included requiring clubs to have academies if, it was, you know, if you were playing professionally in the top two divisions, which was not a requirement before. Uh, and that included, you know, having these permanent training centers uh, that are dotted all over the country, you really aren't far from one. And so if you're not in an elite club, um, you can still be identified and developed. And so maybe at age 12, you're playing for, you know, a a club that's on the 15th tier of the German pyramid um, and just playing an obscure youth club, but you can go to this training center and then, you know, move into the move into the ranks, you know, pro academy to you know youth national team and so forth. Uh, we would have a more difficult time doing that uh, because of all the different stakeholders, and some of that is simply 
legitimately I've talked to people who say, look, I don't want people in Chicago to dictate everything that happens. In fact, some of the things that they've done along those lines, like the Bernstein mandate, um, have really blown up in their face. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's part of the difficulty. Um, I think what it really takes is someone to go in and provide a framework that still allows these different stakeholders to have to have their say, to have their thinking things, but also prevent. Uh, a lot of people take proponents of having multiple pathways. I mean, some kids are going to be ready to play professionally at age 15. Uh, some are going to be, you know, some will need another couple of years in the academies and they might be ready to age 18. Some of them, you know, might go to college, play two years, and then they're ready. And then, you know, at some point you may have like the Jamie Barneys of the world who are, you know, I think, was he working as like a bricklayer or something like that? He was 21 and playing eighth division soccer. You know, you're going to have, you know, that's a pathway too. So you want to have multiple pathways, but you want them to be clear pathways. Uh, and you want them to, you want to be able to pay attention to all of them. And so, um, especially the United States, where some people are going to prioritize education and, uh, suddenly, and, but then at age 21, hey, that guy's a really good defender. You know, I think like Eddie Pope, who, uh, you know, came out of college the year MLS started and was a fantastic defender. Uh, so that's what you need. You need something that's coherent and something that is bold, uh, but also flexible. And so whose responsibility is that? Because I think I would argue that there aren't a lot of pathways. Really, MLS is the end-all and be-all, and there's tons of examples of players, communities, and regions that just kind of get ignored, and I don't see that changing. So so how do we solve that? What like Isn't this on the Federation, and it doesn't seem like they're addressing these issues? Uh, it could be, and there are, of course, there are exceptions, you know, Christian Bulevich is one of them, you know, he went overseas before he was ever in an MLS program, uh, and then we look at things, and there was a great article uh, a few months ago about the Alianza program run by, oddly enough, by the son of longtime U.S. soccer president, Alan Rothenberg, which yeah, was identifying Brad all these players, right, Brad Rothenberg, and it yeah. was identifying all these players who were not in that MLS uh, structure. And so it, that's sort of a double-edged sword as far as the Federation is concerned because in, on one hand, hey, Federation, how did you not recognize these, uh, uh, these players? Then on the other hand, it's like, well, it's a good thing that uh, that program existed. Now, obviously, I don't think any reading of that excuses the Federation by any means, but even if the Federation is paying full attention to Alianza, as it certainly should be, it's probably a good thing that that program exists uh, and is somewhat independent and can do its own thing as long as the Federation is paying attention and saying, okay, Brad, you know, uh, what you got for us? You know, what, what should we be coming to see? And, uh, you know, hey, you identified a really talented senior-old? Okay, let's get into a youth national camp. So, um, I think that would be the ideal way to move forward. But I, I, per interviews, and I'd have to refer back to s- certain articles, it seems like the folks at Alianza 
seem to indicate that or suggest at least that the Federation doesn't really have any interest in partnering or it almost, in some interpretations, you could view it as hostility towards a program like right. this. And when you, and when you look at, when you look at the pattern of, you know, obviously the Hispanic community being one example of that, it just seems mm-hmm. like the Federation is not serving their members, you know, in the ways they should be. No, they're also not serving their non-members the way they should be. I mean, there are people who are um, outside the U.S. soccer umbrella who ideally would be in it somehow. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. So so maybe this will be a segue, and uh, just here's a question is, so when you look, because you talk, nothing's going to happen in terms of 2022, 2026, because these are short-term things, and the problems we're talking about are are large-scale. So if we if we just pick a number, but say like if we're looking at 2050, so somewhere in the distant future, how do you where do you see the trajectory of soccer in America? Do you think we're gonna be a world power in 2050? Do you think we have the potential to be there? I guess how do you assess the landscape today and how its foundation is set up to you know place the U.S. where it will fall in you know 30 plus years time? I would like to think that simply by growing the culture and becoming more demanding about it. And, you know, there's something wrong with becoming more demanding, uh, which I think a lot of people are. I think that's why we had eight people, actually nine, actually ten, uh, running for president this past time. And also coming up, uh, we have more contested elections. The U.S. Youth Soccer Annual General Meeting is this weekend. There's a contested election for president. U.S. Adult Soccer uh, has its meeting in August. John Mata is facing two opponents there. So I think as our culture has grown, I think that that has made people demand change. And so I, I'm cautiously optimistic that we will get better from that. You know, the, the growth of the game just by having more of it on TV, more people interested, less of a stigma about being a soccer fan. Because, you know, I come from a generation where, you know, being a soccer fan was frowned upon. And so you, what's wrong with you, you think of a socialist, uh, long-haired hippie freak? You know, that's gone. Um, and, and that's good. So I'm consciously optimistic that that will change. And, of course, the pessimist in me says climate change is going to doom our coastlines and we're all going to have to move to Canada anyway. Uh, so... <laughs> But that's another rant, uh, as I say a lot. Um, so, yeah, I can't point to – but to get to where I think you're going with it, I can't point to anything specific that the Federation is doing right now that is getting us there. You know, we haven't flipped that switch yet. At some point, the switch needs to be flipped. I don't do yet. And maybe that's a segue where I'll jump in is, you know, so I'm someone – I firmly believe that – promotion and relegation and implementing an open pyramid structure is what's necessary um, and, and should have been done in the past, but what's necessary at least going forward for the U.S. to really, you know, become an elite soccer nation and to start actually making strides to catch up with, you know, the top nations in Europe and South America. So so maybe this is a good point to kind of just start talking about that. So, so what are your thoughts there? Well, I think we need – Opportunity. And 
that's opportunity for supporters, that's opportunity for communities, and that's opportunity for players. And so to do that, you need a broader soccer culture, and you need um, you, know, you could go through and put a youth training center, you know, every every 20 miles. I mean, I don't think that's that's feasible. You could do that from the the federation on down, but that only solves one of the problems. That only solves the opportunity for players and does so, I think, in a very inefficient way. I think so. I think if you have more professional clubs, then that's certainly a good thing. Now, what I worry about in terms of promotion relegation is the relegation side of that. Um, so, because we see examples in England and so forth where, okay, well, we got relegated from the fourth tier to the fifth tier, well, we're going to close our academy. And even a Premier League uh, club, you know, Huddersfield, uh, closed most of its academy. There's what's called a Category 4 academy where you only have the upper age group. You don't have any lower age groups. Right. And now, some of that's specific to England because they have what's called the EPPP, and it's not worth going into that, but it, it does disincentivize clubs for reasons that aren't specific to promotion and relegation. Uh, but, yeah, I think that the more pro clubs you can have, uh, that's better. And so, so my take on it would be that if a club has the resources and the interest to be professional, then it should be allowed and encouraged to go professional. You know, if they can meet very basic standards, you know, not the Division Three Pro League standards, which are too yeah. too high, but just very basic standards, including having an academy, uh, that I think that club should be professional, and it should not be relegated out of the professional league. So, and I think that's where we can turn our geography into an advantage. You know, in England, it makes sense to say, okay, we're going to have 20, 24, 24, 24, and then below that is semi-pro. I mean, years, a couple of decades ago, anything below that was basically amateur. Uh, right. That's that changed just recently and changed after a hundred years in England. Uh, the Netherlands is trying to create a gateway between, uh, pro and amateur clubs with so far without too much success. Um, I think the way to do it here would be to say, look, if you can do a professional, We'll get you in a professional league. Now, you may be at the bottom of the pyramid. That pyramid may have three tiers. It may have four. I think either the third or the fourth, whatever that bottom tier is, should be as big as we can possibly make it. I mean, if it's 200, if it's 300 clubs, so be it. And you can still compete and try to move up uh, out of there. I wouldn't want to... Take a club that tentatively takes that step, builds that facility, starts its academy, uh, goes into its first pro season, and gets relegated to where it's not it's not getting, you know, if there's local TV money or something like that. I, I wouldn't want that to happen. So for me, I, I, I would say try to have a very broad base and move up, and I think, you know, that's the opportunity. In fact, I have the alternate idea, which is basically the NCAA model. You look at the NCAA in not just college basketball, which is what people think of the most, but, you know, college basketball, there are, you know, 300-some Division One teams. And they, any one of them can win the national championship. Now, it's most likely to be a traditional power, you know, 
I, I went to Duke. Uh, we occasionally win it. Um, and, uh, or North Carolina or Villanova or Kentucky or something like that. Villanova is a good example. They're not a huge school. That's just an adjustment they've made. Um, and then you can have Butler or Gonzaga or something like that, uh, come out and, and win a championship. Um, you look back at Bowen's soccer a long time ago, Philadelphia textile was a power. So, so Bowen, because I, because I don't have, um, really much disagreement on, on the proposals. And I think, I think if we were at a situation where there are 200, you know, D3 or D4 or whatever you outline clubs that could all, you know, rise to the top, I think that would be an immense improvement over where we're at today. Mm-hmm. But I guess so you're obviously receptive to this idea and, and you see a lot of the benefits of it. I guess, but if, if you're, if you were to talk to folks at U.S. Soccer, obviously folks at MLS would not be, a, this idea is, is viewed with, you know, at worst, you know, hostility, but usually just opposition or, or reluctance to even bring it into conversation. Why do you think the United States is – why isn't promotion relegation much more of a, a sensible alternative that people are pushing for and that really, you know, is going to happen? Okay, well, let's go to the couple of the stakeholders. We'll start with the Federation itself. And they will at least say – the right things about they'll say, look, if you come up with a weed proposal that has for a rel, uh, we'll certainly let you do it. And they they let. But isn't that isn't that backwards? Aren't they as the federation supposed to institute a framework, you know, that appeals to all the stakeholders that they're accountable for? They have a fiduciary duty to promote, you know, soccer in this country. Aren't they the ones that should say, you know, this is going to be the structure? These are this is you know because fundamentally, soccer around the world is where clubs compete. We're the only country, you know, besides a couple of exceptions, but really the only country that, you know, where the proposal of leagues competing exists. Like, that's not a notion that really exists in any other country. So so isn't it right. really the, US, the USSF's prerogative to, you know, establish this framework so that, you know, clubs are free to, you know, go out of business, you know, start up and, you know, rise and fall as, you know, the performance in the field dictates. Well, I think that for the in terms of the federation leading the way, I mean, my understanding of the way a lot of countries have evolved is not so much the federation came in and said, "Okay, this is how we're going to set things up." Um, I mean, England, of course, is the example we're most familiar with, and that was, you know, the FA Cup existed, and then uh, clubs over the course of a decade or so said, hey, we want to start paying people to play. And the FA was like, no, you shouldn't do that. But then eventually they won out, and then they said, okay, well, 12 of us are going to get together in London. We're going to form something called the Football League. And then a few years later, there was a rival league, and, you know, not quite as big. And they said, well, tell you what, why don't you come in with us and form a second division? And that's how promotion relegation started. So, um, now, of course, that was, you know, 130 years ago. So I don't know if we necessarily need to you know, wait as long as England did. I think we can, you know, rush the process a little bit forward from there. Um, I think what U.S. soccer needs to do, though, rather than be the dictators, would be the facilitator. And I think that means getting these leagues together. Um, now, granted, I mean, how many leagues do we have right now? The NASL, to me at this point, is a a legal entity that 
sues the Federation. They are not a league anymore. I think their clubs should, you know, the remaining clubs, Jacksonville and New York and, uh, oh, Miami, uh, should, you know, we should find a way to get them in other leagues, whether it's in, uh, you know, NISA or whether it's, uh, an NPSL pro division, uh, or something. Uh, so, I think the league, though, can be the facilitator in, or, no, sorry, the federation can be the facilitator. And, you know, again, the point of thinking is that they say the right things. They did allow promotion relegation in the 90s. Um, it just didn't really take root because it didn't meet the needs, um, or it wasn't realistic for the clubs at the time. I mean, there were clubs that said, you know, the club might win a division and have the opportunity to go up, and they say, no, we're, spending too much, we want to go down and play amateur soccer because we can't afford to be professional anymore. Uh, now, I think he can do it. And actually, I think the most likely place you're going to see promotion relegation for, uh, in the next decade would be the USL. Um, yeah, depending on how much they're able to build up the Division 2, Division, you know, build up the Division 3 they're starting now. So... That's one of the stakeholders. And, and again, all the U.S. soccer, if you talk with, you talk with Neil Gulati, uh, and I think you talked to Cordero, you know, they say, oh, well, we're agnostic on it. You know, if people are interested in doing it. We'll talk about it. That's, that's one group of stakeholders. NLS is openly hostile to it. Um, and I, that has always disappointed me. And you know, I talked with John Garber. Uh, in Orlando at the U.S. Soccer Convention. It was the first time I'd, I'd seen him uh, in a few years. And I talked with him about the crew, you know, the Columbus situation, and, you know, expressed my dismay that, you know, and, and said, well, you told him all the reasons why I think it would be a, a, a bad move, and he told me some of the reasons why uh, some of the struggles they face in Columbus and posted a discussion there. Um, and I mentioned for a relative, and, you know, it could be something that's worth discussing. And, you know, he's – now, the, the question is, of course, Garver serves at the at the will of NLS owners. In fact, this is the last year of the contract. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens with that. Um, and the owners tend not to speak independently. Um, so we, are there some owners who are interested in doing this? I don't know. Um, and then the other thing is the public aspect of it is that, unfortunately, you know, discussion turned poisonous. And so there are people in the media, I mean, you know, why don't most journalists uh, ask Don Garber or Carlos Cordero or Sneel Gulati about promotion relegation on a regular basis? It's because they're sick of it. You know, it's because they're, they're sick of dealing with it. They know that. Uh, Who's sick of being journalists or, or? Journalists. The journalists. Yeah. yeah I mean, could you expand on What do you mean they're sick of dealing with it? Uh, they are sick of being abused by people on social media, you know, for not saying the right thing. They're sick of having uh, parody accounts. They're sick of uh, being accused of taking money from Major League Soccer. Uh, you know, they are, they're sick of it. And, um, in a lot of cases, it's not because, in fact, I would say in pretty much all cases, it's not because they're not clear on the concept of uh, promotional allegation. I mean, they all follow England. They all uh, follow Germany. They, you know, they're all aware of how the rest of the world operates. 
um, but it's become one of those conversations that it's just not worth getting into uh, because it is so politicized, because it is, uh, you, know, you start out trying to have, a, you know, and I've gone through it a million times. You start out trying to have a reasonable conversation, and I haven't given up, <laughs> which makes me sort of unusual. I don't know if that means that I'm uh, completely optimistic or perhaps a glutton for punishment, but uh, so that's, you know, I have I have two parody accounts now, <laughs> which, you know, one of them dug up an old vacation photo of mine. That's kind of creepy. Yeah, and so you yeah. look at that, and you, you say, yeah, I don't you look at that and go, okay, that's that's enough. I'm just going to write about you know what's happening in MLS and the national team, and I'm not going to talk about promotion relegation because MLS isn't talking about it. It's not a new story. I have to cover it right now. Well, I'm not going to. And you can say, well, they should you know suck it up and do it anyway. But I think it's a natural human reaction to say, look, it's not an issue right now uh, because the powers that be aren't talking about it. Maybe the powers that be feel the same way. They don't want to dip their toes in the water because, you know, there are sharks and piranhas in it. I, I, I hear you in the perspective of, of course, nobody, you know, wants to feel attacked or, you know, have parody accounts created, but I, I would kind of say just the suck it up response because, mm-hmm. I mean, you have to look at it from the perspective of there's lots and lots of people who see this as, of course, MLS and Don Garber are opposed to promotion relegation. They have a financial interest, which could be you know, harmed by that. I, I also think it could be greatly, you know, amplified by that, but but that's another mm-hmm. another point. Um, so, and obviously there's the, the, the relationship between U.S. soccer and MLS is obviously, you know, it's muddled and kind of impossible to untangle that fully. Yeah. So, but, so we, as you were well aware, are one of, you know, two, three nations that do not have promotion relegation. And at all, right? At all. Yeah. And when right. you look at kind of what I talked talked about earlier, I think we are just completely doing a poor job on the men's side, and I think the women's side is experiencing these issues as well. And you look, I look at my, you know, try and predict the future, and I don't see any way under this current MLS model, the structure that we have today, that. I don't see how we're better off in five years and 10 years. So we have a little bit more expansion. We get to 28 teams, but I just, I I think we're still not going to be developing great players. I think we're still going to be excluding all the people that are being excluded. There's still, you know, the gender inequality issues. There's in the, in the front office and the coaching, there's lack of diversity. There's, there's all these things that, that aren't working out. And I think there's, you know, I, I, it's just a struggle, and media are one of the people, the media, the role of the media is one of the things to challenge this and force people to think about this and address it. And, I, I mean, it's just, I think it's frustrating for folks like myself to see it not kind of being swept aside. So, so, so I guess, what, what's your take on that, though? Yeah, I mean, I I would share your frustration on that. I, I think... Some of it is, some of this will be pragmatism and some of this will be idealism. And I think that um, one thing to bear in mind is, if we're talking about player development and so forth is that, well, actually, let me get back to one thing. You mentioned women's soccer, uh, which, of course, I've covered a lot of. Um, yeah. I wrote a book on the Washington Spirits first season, and I've been there through all three leagues. And 
to an extent, what's going on with women's soccer is, kind of, is instructive for how soccer works in the country, which is right now they don't have enough teams. Um, and if you look at other countries, they didn't start doing promotion rel- – you know, they didn't set up a promotion relegation pyramid and then say, okay, come populate it. They had a lot of clubs that were – that built up and were capable of competing at whatever the highest level was at the time, and then they said, okay, we're going to start um, – we're going to set some standards. We're going to have, you know, in England at first they're doing elections, and then it became promotion relegation, and that's how we're going to do it. Well, when you have nine clubs, then you can't do it. And, you know, there aren't other people, you know, we look at MLS right now and say, well, there are all these communities clamoring. Uh, you know, they all have people who are willing to, to build clubs to this level, and that's why it frustrates me that MLS isn't considering other options. Uh, the NWSL is not at that point. You know, the NWSL doesn't have a lot of people coming in. Uh, so then so we mentioned... Yeah. I was just going to say, sorry, sorry to jump in, but um, so sure. one, of, one of the things I've written about is MLS's business model. And I look at teams like Atlanta United and now LAFC this year, and I think right. they are illustrations of how inefficient our structure and MLS is in that these are teams created out of thin air with no history, no player, nothing that existed. And in just a few months time, they're able to be one of the upper echelon teams, if not, you know, amongst the most dominant teams in the league pretty much immediately. And they don't, don't, they're not doing anything fancy. They're just buying some, some quality players. They're, you know, going to South America primarily they get quality no, coaches academy. and yeah, academies who can't forget that. Sorry? Building academies who can't forget that. I mean, Arthur Blank built a, a really state-of-the-art yeah. state uh, facility and uh, you know, united what a lot of existing clubs were doing. But so I look at the landscape and I say, we look at Detroit, Cincinnati, you know, Phoenix, Sacramento, San Diego, Charlotte, Pittsburgh, all of these cities that would happily would love to get in and they're, they're not able to do it. And there's, there's no reason in my mind why those teams couldn't, you know, mirror Atlanta or mirror LAFC and, and, you know, bring all this quality to the table and it's just not allowed. And, I don't see any power structure in U.S. soccer that's pushing to really make that happen. And it seems like MLS holds all the cards, and they're just going to keep on living, getting their expansion fees, and go on. And and I don't see that changing, and I just worry. And I think the evidence shows that I don't think it's going to improve or change. I think we have trends that are pointing downward that are just going to continue to persist. So... I talked to someone like you, and I just, you know, what can be done? How do we change this? And you mentioned how the media doesn't really want to get into the topic. U.S. soccer, you know, at best is agnostic, but I think they're opposed to the idea. So so what happens? How do, how do we make this come to fruition? Because you seem to support the idea. Yeah, I I do, but I, I also see um, the, you know, the counterweight to it. And, yeah, this gets us to... You know, something worth mentioning, which is the uh, Deloitte report, which was commissioned by uh, Ricardo Silva uh, to yep. look at promotion relegation, and it was, in general, very bullish on the idea. It did, however, point out that, look, there are these people who are bringing a lot of money uh, into soccer 
which is a good thing. I mean, you know, as much as we think money, you know, we think, oh, it shouldn't be about money. It's like, well, look, money is what pays for all this. I mean, would would Real Madrid be Real Madrid if they couldn't, you know, afford to buy buy their players? And uh, you know, would Barcelona be Barcelona if they couldn't afford to buy to hire the best academy coaches? Um, you know, th- these are all important things to have. And so the Zalone report said, well, what you need to do is mitigate the risk for these people. And so the, the question you have now is, okay, you look at Atlanta. Does Arthur Blank spend that kind of money up front if he's not guaranteed Division One status? What do you think? It's a, it's a, I think it's it's a difficult question to answer because right now in the way that the investment they're making arguably the, the the more valuable piece is the the interest in some itself so it's hard to say what someone would invest just in a club you know, based on you know the financial feasibility and and potential profits of that club but but so so it's hard to separate in this you know, current environment versus if we had, you know, there was no sum and it was just an organic investment in a club itself. But, um, but I I don't think that's a reason to not explore and, and hopefully ideally implement a a promotion relegation structure. And undoubtedly, undoubtedly that would be one of the areas uh, that, you know, would have to be some solution would have to be, you know, figured out uh, on how do we, you know, untangle all these people who have invested and obviously the expansion fees have varied pretty wildly even over a short period of time but mm-hmm. nonetheless we'll figure out a solution but to your point on the Deloitte report though how often do you ever see that come up so we have this study and we could argue what about its independence or whatnot but there's this meaningful study put together that like as you said is very bullish in promotion relegation and it's never brought up. It's never, hey, U.S. soccer, there's this study. Why don't you do something about it? And I just think we're in this in this world where it's the status quo, the people who are in charge do not want to bring this up. They don't want to address this, and they're just getting on, get to move forward without having to, to really, you know, talk about it or have to justify why they're not embracing or, or exploring this idea. Yeah, and, you know, there's one thing I should – point out both about journalists and about people working in soccer, which is that you know, they they have jobs to do also, especially in the in the media. I mean, you look at I mean the news just today with the New York Daily News back half its staff. Um right. so uh so journalists are being asked to do more of what it's why I always chuckle a bit when people say, Well we have promotion relegation, we'll have better media and I think, Oh really? You're gonna make people subscribe to newspapers again? <laughs> so <laughs> Uh, or make people buy classified ads because, you know, that's what, you know, your local newspaper, you know, 25 years ago when I started out, uh, classified advertising paid a lot of the bills. Um, when was the last time you took out a classified in your local paper? Yeah. You know, if you want something out of your house, what, you, you're not, you're not calling your local paper to replace the classified. So all that money's gone away. Um, so. so I know we're kind of, kind of nearing the end a bit, but, um, I, I guess, so w- would you say you are supportive of promotion relegation? And, and and if so, I guess, what do you see as the pathway forward to actually, you know, taking steps to, to initiate promotion relegation in America? Okay, yeah, I'm supportive. 
I think the way forward uh, is two-pronged. One is to come up with a good plan that you can demonstrate to MLS. And it's by a good plan, I don't mean say that you can sell media rights for $4 million uh, when your own media company is actually defaulting on payments, you know, which is what happened. I mean, going up and saying, look, there's a feasible plan where you can have, you know, parachute payments, which is something that Eric Ronaldo mentioned, uh, which yep. is something Premier League does. Um, yep. And perhaps a plan, I mean, you know, I threw out just the trial balloon and something that, you know, maybe people don't like it, but it's just a thought, which is that if you are at a premier professional level, if you've done a certain level of investment, then you, can, you can't be relegated below Division Two. You can still be relegated. You still have, and, you're, and if you get relegated, you're going to fight like hell to get back in Division One. Uh, but you take, you know, say Atlanta United has a bad rash of injuries or something like that. They don't go all the way down to Division Three. Um, you would have to divide up soccer United marketing somehow, or buy people out, or something like that. I mean, you, uh, you know, that would be something to address. And I don't know exactly how, but I, I think there are people you know, with more business sense than I have, who could make the case to MLS, and I don't know if it changes. I, I used to make the argument that, you know, it won't change even when Garber's done. Now we're starting to wonder. I mean, I mean as I said before, Garber's shop is to represent the owners uh, right. and to provide ideas. Uh, so, you know, he's not just, you know, he's not just a puppet, but, you know, he's, um, it, the owners run MLS, not Garber. And, so I do wonder, though, if a change of commissioner would just provide a different perspective on that. So, you know, maybe it would change a bit. So that's one prong. The other is at the lower divisions, go ahead and do it. You know, uh, and we keep hearing, oh, all these clubs are ready to do professional stuff in the NPSL. Okay, do it. Yeah, there is, honestly... Nothing stopping them from doing it. There is already a fully a professional league. Now, granted, when we say professional, they're not paying real money. And, and that's the American soccer league, the ASL, is paying through U.S. adult soccer. And they go. And in fact, I had this conversation with Robert Palmer. Well, not really a conversation. It's more like a Twitter thing, uh, where I, I asked. I said, "Hey, why don't why don't you formally through U.S. adult soccer and play professionally?" And he looked back and said, "Oh, we can't do that." And over the course of time, someone told him, oh, yes, you can. And that's where some of his meetings, that's where the Chattanooga Summit came in uh, to effect. And so what, what I would say is, look, if you have enough clubs in the NPSL that want to form a professional division where you're not relying on college talent, where you can play longer than just eight weeks, then do it. If you have enough that you can do promotion and relegation, then do it. And to me, it you, know, you mentioned that to some people, and they will say, oh, well, you're just protecting MLS. Again, it goes back to how the system is poisoned. They say, oh, you just want to have these little, you know, you just want to throw this little thing out to them, you know, like, uh, you know, a politician uh, saying stuff they doesn't really believe in just to get this one. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with going incrementally, um, in part because every other country that I know of has done it that way. No, I think you would have to. Um, sorry, I'm just going to jump in here. I think you'd have to go in phases. You'd have to go incrementally. But just touching on yeah. prongs one and two real quick. 
So I, I guess I just find it interesting that you mentioned in discussing prong one that you'd have to go and, you know, make some proposal to MLS. And I just yeah. don't – it doesn't sit right with me or make sense that why does MLS have to be consulted? You know, why do they get any authority in this matter? And let's set aside the, the sum and the financial stuff we'd have to untangle. But shouldn't U.S. soccer be making that call and either saying – hey, this is what we're doing, MLS, this is the role you fit in, this is how you're going to have, like, I, so I'll ask you to, to address that. And then second, on um, on the second prong, and on the go out and do it, that's fine and all, but again, I, I still feel like that's putting the cart before the horse. Isn't, again, if U.S. soccer makes some step, what a clubs at lower levels can see, oh, you know, this has a possibility, if we, if we prove our viability, there, but, like, just to be like, oh, why don't you go do this thing that may or may not ever, you know, come to fruition, it just doesn't seem like a really, you know, realistic approach to, to you know, to bring it up. You know, I, I again, this is something that we can't prove, but I would strongly believe that if clubs had a realistic pathway to, to advancing and, and joining the, the, the real pro ranks, I think we'd see a ton of investment. I think we'd see a ton of clubs really start investing, but, but what would be the point of it now? So, so I, I, I just take issue with those two prongs in those ways. So I, I would just love to, to hear your response. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll point to the, the roadblocks or the obstacle uh, first and then offer some solutions or hopefully. Okay. Uh, first with MLS, uh, you have both an ethical, uh, question, and then you have a pragmatic slash legal question. Uh, the ethical question would be, look, you have these people who have poured in a ton of money, and that includes building up youth academies, and that includes, you know, facilities and so forth, which, you know, again, that actually, not to digress too much on the crew, but it's one of the reasons why the crew absolutely should not be moved is because they made that investment. Um, so, you know, if have a promotion relegation system where they might get relegated to Division Two. Okay, but move them? No, that is that is the worst idea I've heard since MLS started. Um, but then, yeah, ethically, you say, well, shouldn't these people be included? I mean, shouldn't Arthur Blank be included? Shouldn't the LASD investment group be included? Um, so I, I would have a hard time saying that they should not be. Now, we may agree or disagree on this. Well, that, but then we get the pragmatic point, which is that U.S. soccer came in and started telling them how to do things. I mean, Rocco Camiso is going to be in court with them forever. Um, imagine if they tried to do the same to Arthur Blank and to LASC and to, you know, whoever buys DC United, uh, and Merritt Paulson and everybody else. They would be in the same, you know, they'd be in court for a very long time. And I think that's what they want to avoid. I think at this point, I think at this point, U.S. soccer just wants to avoid getting me in court. Um, and to some extent, I can't I, I hear you there, but in terms of ethics, I guess mm -hmm. I don't see the ethical quandary you're outlining. So, so you're saying these people, I mean, they're essentially investing into a monopoly. They're, they're, this is a structure where there's, you know, you know, legitimate barriers to entry that you can't overcome. And we're talking about mm -hmm. break this up. So isn't the ethical argument more that, why is, you know, anyone who wants to enter professional soccer, D1 in the United States, cannot do that? 
So to me, that is more of an ethical issue that we're just prohibiting any, you know, entrant from from anyone who wants to do it rather than I, I agree. I think there's a price and, you know, buyout type situation you'd have to figure out um, with MRS right. and the owner. But but I don't view that as an ethical issue, particularly when I think it's a deeper ethical challenge of the exclusion of anyone who would want to enter, enter MLS who's currently prohibited. Right. We can say, look, this is our end goal if we want to give people, uh, give clubs, give communities the opportunity to, to move in. I think you still, I think even in what you were outlining where it was, uh, you know, figuring out buyouts and, and so forth, I think those are things that you certainly have to include the people who are being bought out in that conversation or the, the monopoly that's being broken up. I mean, I think if monopolies have been broken up and, uh, I guess some of them were done so, you know, in court, but I think the majority of them uh, were, I mean, the one that was in my lifetime, which shows how old I am, uh, was, you know, the phone company used to be a phone company. Right. Um, and I can't imagine that it broke apart without input from the phone company, you know, without fairly significant input from the phone company, perhaps even guided to an extent by the phone company. I could be wrong on that. Um, and so somebody please email me if I'm wrong. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I know a lot of lawyers, <laughs> so they'll, they'll let me know if I'm, if I'm wrong on that. But I, so. Sure. I think we're sort of splitting here. So I, I think we, we would agree that to some extent, I mean, you, you can't just, you know, you, they would have, they would end up having their say at some point. And it could be whether you sit across the table from them, uh, in a friendly meeting or whether you sit across the table from them in the courtroom. Or, you know, yeah, I, I'd agree with that. But, but again, I, I guess, again, I'm not trying to – just looking at your two prongs, I, like, so I'm looking for the pathway forward, and, and you laid out two prongs. And so I guess for the first, I, I don't see the ethical issues with that. So I think we just kind of went through that. And then on the second prong, I guess I'll just say the phrase again, but I, I think that's putting the cart before the horse, just telling lower division clubs to just go and do it with no, you know, incentive structure, no reward, no upside for them. So I guess, I guess, do you really think that's realistic, that clubs are just going to start, you know, operating in the hope that maybe someday in the future promotion relegation will will provide them some opportunity to, to move upward? Well, I, I would say this. I, I would say that, you know, don't just, you know, start an NPSL pro division with ProRel within it or something like that and let that be it. You know, that shouldn't be the only thing you do. You should also be saying to U.S. Soccer, look, we're doing this because the, the Pro League standards are ridiculous uh, because, you know, you're you're forcing us to have a majority owner with a certain net worth and that excludes an awful lot of people. Um, right. You know, we should be able to put together an ownership group that can realistically pay a performance bond each year because that that is certainly reasonable uh, to you know make sure that we put up money so that we're not folding in midseason because that's that's the intent of standards and you know, everybody has standards you know England my goodness the England football league standards I mean it's like you have to have closed circuit surveillance <laughs> it's it's crazy uh, and um, I think that what they I would hope that if NPSL were to start a pro division, it would force a conversation about the pro league standards. 
Now, I'll, I should point out that from another practical point of view, the pro-lead standards probably are not up for discussion as long as there are lawsuits related to the pro-lead standards. Um, right. So that's another another issue of this. But, but I would say that, yeah, I'm not saying in a vacuum, oh, just go do it. I'm saying yeah. do it and then use it to force a conversation. Right. So so I guess I just come back to you then. I think just in the, the points I raised on your, on your, on your points, I do think U.S. soccer really is going to have to take a, an active role. And I still think it could mm-hmm. be as a facilitator. They might not have to make the decision on, you know, these buyouts of MLS. Maybe there's arbitration or courts or, or they just facilitate, you know, some agreement. But, but I guess to me, it seems like U.S. soccer is going to have to play a pretty significant role in dictating, you know, transitioning from this model we have now to some sort of open structure, including pro-rel. And I just don't see that happening. I don't see any pressure being applied on them when, you know, I think a lot of really smart people look at this and say that's really the the catalyst that's going to drive, you know, investment and growth in this country. So I guess what 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 needs to happen or how do we make that happen at U.S. soccer? Because it doesn't seem like there's there's any momentum there. I'll say, first of all, I think, I think you and I agree that there is a role for U.S. soccer that is somewhere between, you know, dictating every single thing that happens with no input and doing what it's been doing for the last 20 years, which is pretty much nothing. Um, there's certainly a role. But I'd say, in, I'd say definitely in between, but much closer to the – to the again, they don't have to be dictating every detail, but I think they right. should be a driving force behind, you know – because this is a, a shift. This would be a big shift in, in affecting lots of people, lots of communities. And I think they should be the one at the top, you know, implementing and, and driving that. Yeah. And I might be more cautious about that than you are, but I don't, I, I think that's a fairly reasonable disagreement. And I don't, I, I frankly wouldn't feel that strongly about it. As long as they're able to make constructive progress, then I would defer to, defer to that. Um, I think what needs to happen, well, I mean, first of all, you know, the president did change. Now, and then I think people will need to start, you know, depending on whatever forum Carlos Cordero is. And actually, I do know that this weekend he is going to the U.S. Youth Soccer Annual General Meeting. And, you know, that is an avenue where people might have some access to him and, and to start bringing this up. And I don't know that the the person challenging the incumbent at U.S. Youth Soccer, I don't know if that person specifically wants to start pressing pro-rel, because uh, yeah, that's not necessarily something you would put in your platform when you're running for U.S. Youth Soccer president. I mean, yeah. it could be, but it's not necessarily something that you would put in. Um, but, you know, that, you know, whoever's president of U.S. Youth Soccer, eventually that becomes a position on the same I'm not exactly sure the bylaws. I don't know if they're automatically on the board, but they certainly would have a lot of say in who is on the board. And that's true of U.S. adult soccer as well coming up. Now, of course, the person there, John Mata, is someone who, you know, he, he's definitely friendly with the reform movement, with Ronaldo, with the NPSL, and, and so forth. Um, so I don't know how that would go, but I think to some extent you have to go through those councils, it could even be going through the athlete council and, you know, if, hey, if you know 
take Mark Rath or Lori Lindsay or Stuart Holden or someone like that and talk yeah. to them and say, hey, bring it up. So, know, so that's, up. that's, I guess, right. what I'm thinking. Um, I've come to the conclusion, or at least the current belief I have, is that I don't think the media is going to be the force that applies the pressure that kind of initiates these changes. But I do think there could just be a groundswell of just the, the fans and players and you know, they have the numbers on their side. Um, if they all, you know, at some point in two years, five years, ten years, whenever it is, just, you know, make their voices so loud and bang the drum on, on pro-rel, you know, the folks are going to get voted out or they're going to have to acquiesce and start addressing the issue. But I guess so. so we're cer- certainly not there yet, and I, and I wonder – why Why do you think, because I look at MLS and I look at where we are and I see much more failure than success and I, I think that we're, we're failing to reach our potential. So why do you think, and it's hard to, to delineate how many fans are supportive versus aren't because, you know, everyone's in an echo chamber or whatnot, but, but why do you think fans aren't more adamant about this and, and just general folks, you know, not at U.S. soccer or MLS, just the casual fan and, and, and participant in the system. So you mean like of the, if you have 50,000 people in Atlanta United game, why aren't 25,000 of them holding at the sign for, for Pro Rail or something, I guess? Right, uh, exactly. Yeah, I, I think it's the sort of You times that across the country and then you got, you know, lots and lots of people. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't know an answer to that, but what you were saying earlier gave me a thought, and that is that another good reason to you know, just do it, you know, to to have that NPSL or whatever it is. Uh, yep. You know, it, it could just, it could have been, frankly, it could have been a lot of clubs joining up with Visa, which for some reason they didn't do. Um, right. And have them join in because then you have something more concrete. You know, then it's not people on, you know, on social media who unfortunately the kind of the self-appointed leaders of that, you know, have kind of stuck their foot in a few times. I mean, Ben Fast recently uh, basically said, you know, actually Donald Trump's top priority is for rel. And, you know, that alienated a lot of people who are pretty dedicated for rel advocates. Um, yep. I, I think if you have an NPS, if the NPSL or NISA were to start something, then you've got something concrete, and then that encourages more journalists to write about it. That encourages more fans to start asking about it. And so, you know, that gives you something around which you can coalesce. You know, Twitter's not, you know, uh, Ted Westerbelt has been trying to get change done by yelling at people or making accusations for 15 years, and it hasn't gotten us anywhere. If you have a... I think it's going to have to be the numbers game, just real, just lots of people with their voices. I personally thought the men's national team failing to make the World Cup would be the straw that would break the camel's back, particularly because, as as I've written, I think the warning signs were were numerous and apparent. We we've now in this decade we've missed a world we've missed the World Cup at every level: U17, U20, Olympics, and senior national team. Mm-hmm. And I, I just it, it, it baffles me a little bit why people aren't more interested in this idea, but. I personally, unfortunately, I think there's going to be more 
sidesteps and missteps and, and unfortunately some, some failures uh, on the national team side. And I, I think ultimately that's what I would predict is what it's going to take is – and maybe if it's not failures, it might just be 20 years from now, 10 years from now. There, there's no improvement, no notable progress, and then people are just going to want an alternative. I, I think I want it faster than, than most, but uh, that's kind of, I guess, my prediction. I'm, I'm just curious what you think about that. All right. So let me flip it around this way. Sure. I think it's a better argument or perhaps a more persuasive argument to say, hey, we can make progress. We can do cool things if we do X, Y, and Z. You know, start here, and then we end up with a promotion delegation system, and then more people have opportunity. I think that's really cool. I think it's less persuasive to say, you know, oh, well, this is a failure. This is terrible. And, you know, and, you know, because that's not going to ring true, you know, if you're part of a crowd, you know, Atlanta United, they've had, you know, what, 59,000 people or so. And you, know, you say to someone who's walking out of that stadium, oh, this is a failure, they're going to look at you like, what are you talking about? We just have 59,000 people in there to watch an attractive team play soccer. Um, so, I don't think that – and what you end up ultimately saying in that case, even if not intentionally, is, oh, well, you're just sort of a sheep. You know, you went in and accepted something that's not uh, that's not top quality, and, you know, you may be talking with someone who is, you know, a diehard Barcelona fan but loves the Atlanta United too, and then they say, well, just shut up. I'm not interested. So I think – yeah, No, it's, it's, it's not – As, you know, we have to do this to prevent failure – Right. It's ultimately not the best way. I, I think the carrot might be better than the stick here when you're talking about persuading people. Yeah, bro. Yeah, I think that's well said. And um, I, I think when I was just to clarify, I think I think there is a, a perception that the U.S. is further along than it is. So I do think it is yeah. important to recognize where we are and the failures that have happened. But it's not really to harp on those. But just to to your point is hey, Atlanta United was a team that did not exist. There was no such thing as Atlanta United. There were no players, coaches, training staff. And now in, what is it, maybe since their inception three years, this is their second season, they're one of the most interesting teams in MLS history and really great style yeah. of play, some of the players. And I would go to Charlotte, Pittsburgh, Detroit, Sacramento, all these cities and say, hey, you guys aren't allowed to do this, and I think you're fully capable of doing this if you are allowed, and then galvanize support in that manner is that, you know, this could really elevate, you know, communities and cities in the country, and then ideally, you know, a rising tide lifts lifts all boats and, you know, take the, the national teams in the country just skyward. And so, so, so certainly I think from a positive and the, the progress that could be made is the angle to, to market and persuade people, but, um, but I do think it is important to just – to recognize that, hey, the senior national team failure, this is, again, one of my, my pet points, is that I see so much of the writing about it is that it was kind of this outlier event, that this it was a confluence of the results in the other games and Clint Dempsey's shot hitting the post, but but it really wasn't. I mean, the writing was on the wall. It was a bad qualifying cycle. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, it really isn't that surprising if you're looking at the data, but but, but yeah, so I, I agree with you on the positive perspective to, to persuade people. 
Right. Well, this has been uh, this has been quite a reasonable discussion. I'm not sure what I'm not sure people are going to know what to make of this, but it's going to be fun to figure yeah. out and see. No, I don't. I don't think we solved anything, but I, I think this is hopefully enjoyable. If, if anyone sits here and makes it all the way. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think. I mean, I think this helped me think of because you know I had never really thought about um, what I was saying at the end there before about how you know try to push it forward by presenting the positive side of things, you know, rather than um, you know rather than hey we messed up. This is how you know this is how we fix it. Uh, I think. Yeah, I, I think even. Eric Winalda, who has that kind of populist touch, you know, where he can, you know, he's a fantastic public speaker and yep. has some very good ideas. Uh, but I do think that he is often casting it as, well, you know, we're not good, so we need to, you know, so we need to. It's and I mean, you do have to say that to an extent. And of course, it's funny because I'm, you know, in writing about youth soccer, um, I'm pointing out a lot of things that aren't working, and there are things like uh, all these different elite leagues that pop up, and so they're forcing kids to travel 200 miles instead of five miles when the team five miles away can be a better game. Um, so, yeah, you do have to point some of the problems, but I do think that, um, yeah, I think you can make an inspiration. I think that's, that's the one takeaway I have from this. It's something I had thought, thought of before, which is just yeah, a good story. I think it's a good point that's useful even for, for someone like me who can pound on, on the problems a lot. But um, I think messaging is important, and it's it's a subtle tweak, but sure, you have to identify what's not working so that change, you know, the, the need for change is apparent. But then, yeah, to focus on the positive and the benefits is, I think, key to really, you know, make people get excited about it. So, yeah, I think that's a, a takeaway for myself as well and, and definitely a good point. Sure. And there are people better suited for doing that than I am. If I were, if I were better at persuading people, uh, U.S. politics would be different, and uh, a lot of soccer would be better. Yeah, a lot of things would be, would be different. Uh, yeah. So, all right. Thanks so much for this discussion, and let's remind people where they can find you: uh, Twitter and uh, blog and otherwise. Yeah, so I'm at uh, the 93rd minute is where my writing is, and then on Twitter I'm at K to the Dubs, um, so you should be able to find all of my writing there. And I do some freelance work on the Athletic right now. Um, but and Bo, I know for us, I'm sure we'll be going back and forth in, in the future. So I look forward to to you know the ongoing discussion as well with you. I look forward to taking a vacation. <laughs> but yeah. I know it's a never ending discussion. I know that you know I put five thousand words on promotion relegation on my site, but uh, yeah, and said that hey, I'm not going to get in Twitter back and forth about it again because and you know I've, I've held to that to an extent, but I do hope that that's not the end of the conversation either. And so, um, but yeah, I encourage the conversation to move forward and I, and really move forward. Uh, and I think that we did that here instead of just you know instead of. They were repeating, you're in that show. No, you're a, you're unreasonable. You know, we, I think we, think we moved past that. So, much appreciated. Thanks a lot. All right, take care. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the Ranting Soccer Dad podcast using whatever podcatcher you use to find us in the first place. Could be iTunes, could be Stitcher. Or maybe you came in through the blog, which is RantingSoccerDad.com, where you will find all the past podcasts, along with news and analysis from the world of youth soccer and beyond. And yes, you will find the occasional rant about things. 
You'll also see a link to the Patreon page to support the podcast and blog and all other Ramping Soccer Dad activities. And you'll see merchandise, including the Travel Sucker t-shirt. Until next time, rant on.